Amen, amen. Good morning, Harvest. Morning. Hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to uh, the book of John in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to the book of John. And we're going to be uh, just starting in chapter 3, uh, verse 22 of the book of John as you turn there. Um, you know, as, you're, as you're going there, as you're moving to, to John chapter 3, you know, we, we talk as a church, we'll talk a lot about vision. I mean, if you're in a business, if you're, if you're, you're doing a church, anything, you're, you're going to be talking a lot about vision. And I'm thankful for the different leadership teams we have at our church that help help bring clarity to our vision, help help us communicate it better and better each time. But but part of my hope as we uh, jumped into the fall in this series called Glory of God was to bring a very clear vision. But don't miss this. I, I'm not just talking about a vision for our church, but but that this, that this would be a vision for everything. Now, I go as far as saying this, that, that in what we're trying to lay out in this series called The Glory of God is that, that this would be the most important theological concept in all of God's Word. Now, that makes me excited this morning as we continue on in the series. It makes me excited that we would be in a place where we'd say we're going to jump into something that, that would be considered the most important theological concept, but it also um, leaves me a bit fearful, uh, definitely inadequate to the task. I, I feel like in this series, I'm trying to recreate a Rembrandt painting and all I've got is a one broken green crayon. So, so... I mean, as, as we roll this out, as we, in fact, even as we jump in this morning, here's what I'd love it for us to do, that even if we'd start this morning, that we would start in prayer. Um, and I mean all of us in prayer, not just me praying before we jump into the Word, but just for a moment, just for a, a, a few moments, just before we jump in, that there'd be a, a time of just quiet prayer and reflection for each of us to go before the Lord. Say, God, would you do a work this morning? And maybe you've rolled in here and then you're like, man, I just showed up at church and now you're telling me I already got to start talking to God. But here's the good thing. That's all it is. It's just talking. You don't need to have fancy words, but um, that maybe even this morning, that right now where, where you are here, if you're watching online, that you would be at start off before we jump into the word together with prayer. And here's what I would want you to do. Pray for yourself. Pray, God, would you reveal yourself? Would you make your word clear this morning? And would you pray for others that are listening? that God would do the same. Would you pray for me that as I preach that, 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 that God's word would be made clear and bold that God would be glorified in this and that we would be changed by it. So why don't we start that now? Just a few moments, just quietly in your heart right now. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you promise to inhabit the praise of your people, that your um, manifest presence is here with us now as we worship, as we open up your word. God, I pray, Lord God, I pray that you would speak clearly through your word this morning. God, I pray that you would, you would clear away the distractions, not, not just outward distractions, but even the noise of our hearts and minds. God, that you would clear that away, that we'd be able to hear your word this morning, that we would be changed today. God, that, God I pray even for myself, Lord. Father, I pray that this morning it would be about your glory, God, that you would help me communicate clearly. Not, not Lord, I mean, I, you know my heart where I would struggle, God, that, that I would, uh, fear of man would want me to do something so that it it's, looks good. But God, for this morning, God, I don't care. I just pray that you would be glorified, that your word would be clear, that you would be lifted up. And God, we would be transformed by your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, here, here's what we're gonna do as we jump in this morning, together this morning. Um, usually what I like to do is we, we, we would grab a book of the Bible, we'd work through it verse by verse, we'd take time and short chunks of scripture to really dig deep into what is the context, where's the gospel in this, how is this impacting our lives, and yet this morning it's gonna be a little bit different. Um, this morning, and I want you to stick with me as we do this, we're, we're gonna actually be unpacking a ton of scripture. I'm just, just quickly burning through a lot of scripture. We're gonna walk through some things, even as we, we share some of these verses. Some of these may be a little hard to hear. I mean, if you grew up in a church that mostly preached cross-stitched pillow verses, right, or coffee mug verses, um, some of these things as we, as we read through it, some of this may be like, what, what, what is going on here? What's being actually said in that verse? And, and here's my hope. My hope is this, that some of these verses will begin to actually blow our minds a little bit, begin to, begin to break apart maybe bad or weak or soft doctrine or theology that we may have built our lives up on. And as God's word does that, Here's what I'm excited about, because here's what I'm after in this whole series. I'm after our joy. That I believe as, as God uses his word to blow up some misconceptions we may have about who he is and what he's really after, that we would find a deeper and a greater joy underneath that. A bedrock of joy and hope that, that's, that's unmoved by what the world brings. And, and here's, here's, here's a question I want us to ask this morning to, to build that bedrock, and it's this. What is God really after? I mean, what, what's God's ultimate end game in this? Well, what's God really going after? And, and here's the answer, I believe, from Scripture to that question. Here's what God's end game is. Here's what he's, his ultimate purpose. God is for his own glory. Let me say it this way. God is for God. His ultimate end game is that he is glorified, that everything he does is motivated by his desire to bring glory to himself. And what we're gonna see, because even that right there, you might go, really, that's, that's it? What we're going to see in that is that, that God is for God and that is so good for us. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. He said, it appears that all that has ever spoken of in scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in the phrase, the glory of God. That, that God is radically for himself. I mean, if you got your Bibles open to John chapter three, you see right away, look at verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them as, and was baptizing. John, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet put in prison. So as, as the disciple John's writing this, he's, he's letting the readers know, oh, this is before John was put into prison. I get it. So we have here, we've got, we've got two guys baptized. We've got Jesus baptizing, John the Baptist baptized. And they get to verse 25, all right? Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, you remember that in the beginning of John's gospel here, he was talking about how Jesus came and John the Baptist saw him and he right away said, behold, the Lamb of God. He's like, this is it. This is the Messiah. So that's what we're talking about here. You bore witness. You told us that this is who he was. It says, look, verse 26 goes on. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. I'm saying, so what's happening? You, you've, got, you've got the two people about to this, this battle of glories. Who's gonna win out, right? 
Who's gonna get the attention here? Hey, John the Baptist, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's gaining some followers. You have followers. Look what John says. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. He goes, I'm not the Messiah. He says, I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What's he saying? He goes, in a wedding, there's the groom and there's the bride. He's going, I'm not the groom. And, and even though Jesus said, look at John the Baptist, there's been nobody greater than him. John the Baptist saying, hey, hey, even if I'm the best man in the wedding, I'm still not the groom. So, so here's what he's saying. He goes, I'm not here for my glory. I'm not trying to get the bride's attention. That would be an awkward wedding as the bride comes down the aisle and the groom's like, hey, what's up, right? And the, sorry, the, the best man is, is trying to pick up the bride. So he's saying, I'm the best man. My joy is found when? When the groom, Jesus, is, is, is glorified and, and he's finding his joy and, and the bride's finding her joy. That's us, the church, when the two of them are coming together. He goes, that's who I am. I'm just the best man. And what's he say? He ends off saying, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He goes, you're telling me Jesus is gaining more followers? Awesome. He's the groom. I want the bride to follow him. And then he ends with verse 30. Here's the key of what we're going after this morning. It's right here. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, such a powerful statement. And, and here's what I want to show you this morning from God's word. That's where our hope and joy is found. That, that, that people are pushing John the Baptist up onto the stage going, hey, hey, it should be about you. You're, you're kind of a big deal, John. And John goes, no way. My hope and my joy will not last if I make this about me. If it depends on me, it's all gonna crash. He goes, I might be the best man, but I'm not the groom. The groom gets the bride's full attention. John's passion, you seeing this? John's whole desire was for the name and the fame and the glory of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, here's our first point. It's this, when you see out of this passage here, he says this, God must increase. God must increase. Isaiah 48, 11 says it this way. God says this, my glory I will, I will not give to another. God's saying, it's about me. It's about my glory. I must increase. And you start to wonder if you're like me, right away you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God's all for God, if he's God-centered, if it's all about him being glorified, does that not make God a little bit arrogant? Right? And, and a big reason that our heart goes is that we would struggle, and people do, they struggle with this idea. And the reason we would is because we, we try to put this idea of God being about God's glory, we put it in the context of human relationships, right? And we think of that person who's, who's always making everything about them, right? Do you have friends like that? You know people like that? The, the, the one-upper, right? The person who you tell a story, they got a better one. The person who, when you're talking, they're like, yeah, enough about you, let's talk more about me. Is, is that what God's really like? I mean, the Bible says we shouldn't seek our own glory. The, the Bible says that we should be seeking after the needs of others before our needs. And then, doesn't it sound like God's kind of doing the opposite of that? Like, how does this all work together? Let, let me give you an answer. It might sound weird at first. We're, we're going to unpack it as we walk this out through Scripture. God's God-centeredness, God being for God, God being all about His glory is the most loving thing He can do for us. 
God for God is good for us. And why would I say that? As God points us to himself, as, as the one who's truly sufficient. God does not need our attention. God does not need our worship. As he, as he draws our attention to his glory, as the one who is, who is truly holy, he actually is the most glorious of all. As he, as he draws our hearts, as he draws our affections, our pursuits, our worships to him, he's loving us. What is he saying? He's saying, don't waste your life pursuing lesser things. Don't waste your life building it on things that will crumble underneath you. Seek me and my glory and you'll have life. And so for God not to glorify himself, for God not to draw our hearts to himself would be an unloving thing. He would be withholding from us the greater thing. Here's a really lame illustration that I would have to kind of get our heads wrapped around this, but I'll say it anyway. So if you were here last Sunday in the building, um, there was a guy here, Chris Clark, you may know him. It was his birthday, and for his birthday, he rented a Lamborghini. All right, so out in the parking lot, there was this sweet Lamborghini, right? And it was amazing. Now, if I were to say to you, as that Lamborghini is out there, if I were to say, hey, 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 that Lamborghini is way better than my little Subaru, it would be true, right? There'd be truth in that. In fact, it would be unloving for me to say this. Hey, I got a Lambo. You can't have it though. Instead, I'm going to give you my Subaru. Instead, you can have this instead of the Lamborghini. One is truly greater than the other, right? So it wouldn't be true and loving for me to say, you just drive the Sub and I'll give the Lambo to somebody else. Listen, our, our hearts, our hearts are hardwired to worship. Our hearts are, are, are created to seek glory and we wanna put glory into things and God's saying, hey, 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 look to me because I'm the greatest glory. I'm the source of your greatest joy. Uh, I'm where you find your identity, your purpose, your hope, your future, your rest. Don't waste this glory on lesser things. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna run through scripture together and, and we're gonna see that this idea is everywhere throughout scripture. And I mean, I'm gonna be running through a lot of scripture very quickly if you're a note taker and you're like, I can't keep up. I will send out this, the, the list of all this scripture out in the, uh, an e-newsletter this week so you can catch it if you don't catch it this morning. But here's what I want us to see. As we quickly go through God's word this morning, we're gonna see something, that God's word is all about God. That the, the Bible is not really about us. It's ultimately about God. And it's, it's about God being glorified. He must increase. In fact, it begins all the way in creation. God created the universe to, to proclaim, to declare his glory. You look at Psalm 19.1, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God created you and me for his glory. Isaiah 43.7. He says, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created, why? For my glory, he says. Colossians 1.16 sums it up. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And, and then out of creation, God calls a people to himself. Like, why would God call this people to himself? Isaiah 49, 3, Jeremiah 13, 11 say that God called these people for his glory. Psalm 106, verse 7 and 8 said that God rescued Israel from Egypt for his name's sake. Exodus 14, 18, God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Why? It says, for his glory. 
Ezekiel 20, 14, God walked with the people through, his, through the wilderness, spared them in the wilderness. Why? It says, for his name's sake. 2 Samuel 7, 23, God gave Israel the promised land for the glory of his name. 1 Samuel 12, 22, God didn't forsake his people, not because his people were awesome. They were not. He didn't forsake them. Why? It says, for his name. Ezekiel 36, 22, God restored Israel from exile for the sake of his holy name. You start to see pretty quickly when you're reading through the Old Testament, beginning there, and you're reading through the whole story of God's redemption and, and what he's doing in creation in the world, you start to see, wait a minute, I don't think I'm actually the star of this movie. I'm not the main character here. This is all about God. I mean, even you get to some of the most comforting scripture that we go to for ourselves. Like you, you roll into to Psalm 23, right? Just, I need comfort in there. And you start to read that, that he's my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He, he leads me to green pastures. You're like, man, I think I might be the point of this whole thing. And then Psalm 23, 3 says that he does all of that. Why? For his namesake. He's a good shepherd so that we see him. I mean, you think about salvation, and God's grace, how incredible it is. Well, Romans 9, 23, Psalm 25, 11, Isaiah 43, 25, they all say that God's forgiveness, God's grace that he shows to us rebellious sinners, it says it's for his glory. You start to unpack the New Testament. Jesus shows up and he says, I'm here. John 17, he says, I'm here. Everything I do is to glorify the Father. And then Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, he says, whatever you do, all the good things you do, you do those good works, why? So that people around you would look at your good works and they would glorify your Father who's in heaven. John 12, 27 to 28 said that Jesus suffered for us on the cross for God's glory. Ephesians 1, 5 to 7, that Jesus redeemed us for his glory. Philippians 1.11, Paul prayed that we would be filled with the fruits of righteousness for God's glory. 1 Peter 4.11, that we would use all our gifts, the gifts that God gives us to use in the church and in our community and our world. He says, use those gifts for God's glory. And you sum all of it up in 1 Corinthians 10.31, where it says, do everything, whether eating or drinking, to the glory of God. I love that. It's saying, yeah, not just the big stuff you normally would think about, that that will bring God glory. I mean, even in the small stuff, the little things, everything we do is about God's glory. And then you get to the end of Scripture, you start to see how is this all going to wrap up in the end of time? Well, 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus is returning for all the saints to glorify him. Habakkuk 2.14 says, this is the purpose of it all. God's plan is to do this. It says this, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That God's glory would be like that, as the water covers the sea. You know, last summer, my family, we went to the East Coast for a road trip. I don't know how long it's been since you've seen the sea. There's water everywhere in the sea, right? God's plan from the beginning to the end is for us to see his glory. You get all the way to Revelation 21 and it says in the new heaven and the new earth, the sun itself will be replaced. We won't need the sun anymore because it will be God's glory that replaces the sun. Amen. I mean, those are just a few verses. You start to see as you read through scripture that all of it, the more you read, the more you see, man, I think this is about God's glory. That God's for his own glory. In fact, let me say this real quickly before we move on with this, this message here this morning. When you're reading God's word and you're picking up God's word, here's what I'd say, always be looking for that. 
be looking for God, be, be looking for God's glory. Because if, if, if every day, if I'm not drawn, if I'm not wooed by the glory of God, my heart will be wooed and seduced by something else. Our hearts were created for worship. And if I'm not, if I'm not drawn into the Lord's glory, I will be drawn in by something else. So we look into God's word. We spend our time in God's word saying, God, where's your glory? Every page filled with the awesomeness of who God is. The whole point of scripture, it's not just a blueprint for life. It's meant to point us to that place where we find our hearts can ultimately rest, where joy can be fulfilled, where we're exposed to the awe and the wonder of God that's, that's not like any other awe and wonder this world can offer us. God must increase. Now, John the Baptist goes on. He says, God must increase. We see that all through scripture. But then he says, but I must decrease. The second point is that God must increase, but I must decrease. Now, this is the hard part of this whole thing. So wait a minute, wait a minute. I must decrease? I don't like that. What, what about me? I mean, isn't that the, the cry of our culture? What about me? I mean, it's a, the cry even of Christianity a lot of times, right? I thought this was all about me. Like, I thought God was pretty lonely, and so he created me because I can complete him. Like, like I'm going to fulfill him. And, I mean, we even sing that song. He, he didn't want heaven without us, so he brought heaven down. Like, he's pretty into me. And when we read God's word, this whole idea of trying to make it all about me, and what do we do then? We start to unpack some of the, the historical accounts of God at work, and we go, well, well I, better be, I better be like David, and I can slay the Goliaths of my life just like David because I can be a David. I'm going to be brave like a Daniel. And we make ourselves the hero of every story. And, and we look at David fighting Goliath and we see the Israelites all scared. We see the Israelites without faith. I'm like, man, look at those doughheads. Look at those guys. And we miss that that's us in the story. We're not the David of the story. We're the fearful Israelites. And what happens when, when we make ourselves the hero of every story, we're actually, listen, we're missing where our hope is found. My hope is, I'm I'll be honest with you here, my hope is pretty weak if I have to be the David in every story. If every Goliath that comes my way, I have to be David. Man, my hope is very small. But when I realize that while Goliath is yelling out his threats, and the Israelites are, are hiding out in their tent, that, that my hope is this, that a better David came, a greater David, to fight a, a bigger Goliath, that, that, that when I see the glory of God as you read through that account, that Jesus would come and he would, he would slay Satan. He would destroy sin on my behalf, right? So that I could then come out of my tent and I could share in the victory. That Jesus won, but then I get to share the victory. Glory to God in that. It's such a deeper hope when we start to take those verses that we'll throw on a coffee mug, but when you put them in the context of God's glory, we find a deeper hope in those. They only make sense, those, those, those verses we all love, they only make sense. We understand the purpose of God is to reveal himself through Jesus Christ, to, to reconcile, to reclaim to all things to himself. God must increase. I must decrease. Now, here's the, our third and last point this morning. Though. Here's the, the thing about that. God must increase. I must decrease. It is such good news. There's good news in that. Now, why would I say that? Why would God increasing and me decreasing be good news? Here's the first reason. Because it's not about you. 
Like, like we can, you can take like, like a deep mask-covered breath. It's not all about me. Because the more the world is about you, the more frustrated, the more discouraged, the more tired we become. But the less the world's about me, the more free we are. I mean, think about how much conflict in your life begins because there's this foundational belief we have that this is all about me. Think about it, like when that car is driving too slow in front of you or cuts you off too quickly. When you're in the grocery store checkout line, you're in the express lane and that person in front of you has more than 12 items. Come on, every one of us count. Do you not? Come on, we all do the one, two, three, four, five, right? When, when your kid doesn't do what you want them to do. I mean, it's so easy for us to have this default that it's, it's all about me. And you're wrecking my kingdom, man. You're, 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 you're knocking me off my throne. You're, you're ruining what I've got planned in here. And listen, we'll never really admit that so boldly and clearly, but, but we, we start to see that there's this subtle but gravitational pull to set ourselves up as the kings of our kingdom. And when life comes against us, there's this feeling that our kingdom's being attacked. And my kids don't obey, and, and I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not upset because God's not being glorified in their life. The initial upsetness is this, you've knocked over my little throne. I think it's one of the biggest causes of struggles in marriages. You spend so much time and energy to get your spouse to submit to your kingdom rather than God's. And then we're so busy trying to get them to be what we want them to be. And what makes it so difficult is that, listen, this is crazy. God might be up to something else. And oftentimes God's doing a work in our spouse's life that will conflict with, well, here's what I would like to happen. And in all of this, man, our joys, the joy and hope in our life, it, it ebbs and flows based on our kingdom and like a roller coaster up and down, with just based on if, if my expectations are met, if things go well for me, I have joy here. And if they're not being met, my joy disappears. But the good news is found here. It's really not about you. It's not about me. And so when it becomes now more about God's glory, our joy isn't threatened. Again, we're, we're hardwired to pursue after this glory and, and our lives are captured by glory. But if, if our lives are, are not captured by the glory of God, they're gonna be captured by some other smaller glories. And what happens when our lives are captured by the smaller glories, they're also captured by fear. Fear of failure, fear of inadequacy, fear of the future. And your health might fail and that's scary. Your kids may not behave. Your retirement funds might be lost, but listen, listen, Jesus Christ never will be. And when we start to live our lives seeking after the glory of God first, when we're in awe of him, when our hearts are moved and captured by his glory more than our fears, listen, there's a joy that's being established. So our, our view of God, our, our view of his glory needs to be louder than our fears, it needs to be louder than the latest news cycle that comes by. You know, if you think about that, in, in our day and age, it's like 24 hours of news. And I think they're starting to understand that they, they get way more clicks, way more views, the more fear that gets put out there, right? 
more than ever before, I think we need to look into God's word and to see his glory more clearly so we don't give way to fear. And listen, fear is only defeated by, by seeing something greater than your fear. We need to be in awe of something greater. And so God steps in, in the midst of what could cause us fear. He steps in and says, I've got something greater than any fear that can come in. And he says, see my glory. It's, it's when we're in awe of something greater that disarms our fear of what's lesser. I mean, again, let, let's think about David and Goliath. So in 1 Samuel 17, Israel's in this valley of Elah and they're, and they're facing the Philistine army. And out steps this huge warrior, Goliath. And he yells out, send me your best. And what's Israel do? They hide out in their tents for 40 days in total fear. Now, what have they done in that moment? When they're hiding in their tents, what have they done? They have forgotten, they have forgotten the awe of the glory of God. Now Goliath steps out because they've forgotten who God was. They forgot the God who delivered them from Egypt. They forgot the God who, who promised them, who said, I will give you this promised land. And now, because they're missing that glory of God, they now see Goliath as so much bigger. And David shows up. This scrawny little shepherd boy rolls in and he has not forgotten. David is in total awe of God. He, he's seen God deliver him from a bear. He's seen God deliver him from a, a lion. He sees Goliath and he thinks, you're not bigger than my God. And, and David walks into that valley with nothing more than his, his silly little shepherd sling. Why? Because he, he has a greater fear and awe of God and his glory than he does of this giant warrior. And here's the thing we know on this side of the cross. As we look back at that account, we know the, the deeper side of this, that, that God shows up even more in, in full glory in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is now our greater David, that he's stepping onto the battlefield for us. I mean, this is how it works, that, that our, our heart could be so filled and so satisfied with an awe of God's glory that we're not captured any longer by the horizontal fears that this broken world throws our way. We live in a world where we have more at our fingertips than I think any other generation before us, and yet how much more do we see hopelessness and depression and anxiety and shame? Let me speak to that. Listen, you were created with dignity, with, with value, with worth, with purpose. But when we seek for those things in horizontal ways, it's fleeting. But when we root our identity, who we are, we root that deeply in the Lord, that we know we were created for his glory, that we know that he loved and redeemed you, that in the midst of your rebellion and sin and failing, God steps into that and says, I choose you. I love you. I mean, you, you begin to clearly see that the creator of the universe stops what he's doing to see you, to pick you up, to declare that you're his, to pour out his love on you. And you see that, you don't go, I'm so amazing. You say, God, you're awesome. Glory to God. You start to see that God saved you and he freed you to make much of him, that we don't exist to make much of ourselves. We exist to make much of God and, and that God's gonna do whatever he needs to do to grab our attention towards him and his glory. 
Because here's the thing about the Christian life. You're going to find this. Maybe you have. If you've been following Christ for a while, you find that God will bring things into your life that will, will listen, they'll push against a goofy prosperity gospel that would, that would say, hey, once you follow Jesus, everything's great. You'll have wealth. You'll never be sick. And This whole idea of when you, become, when you become a Christian that your life gets all straightened out, everything works. I mean, how many of you have seen that doesn't work? It's not true, Right? And, and in the midst of that, you can either be like, man, the, this prosperity theology is, is either super dumb or maybe I'm just not doing it right. Listen, the truth is this. God at times will bring trials into our lives, not to beat us down, but to draw our hearts to a greater blessing, a greater joy, to take our eyes off of those things that we're going after for glory, those lesser things saying, no, that's not it. I want to give you something that lasts, a hope and a joy that's so much deeper. In fact, I love how Ben Galoshin described it. Ben, ben, young guy from our church who was um, in the hospital, completely paralyzed, totally, everything paralyzed, hooked up to a ventilator, um, suffering from Guillain-Barre syndrome. And he says this in his testimony now, he's talking about it. And he said, there was in that moment as I laid there on that bed, not being able to move, because I realized that God was blowing up my little feeble house of cards I built as my life. And he was blowing that up to rebuild my life on him alone as my foundation. Listen, if you don't understand that God is for his glory and that is so good for us, you're gonna start to get discouraged and fearful and, and frustrated whenever trials come. But when, when you see, man, God will do anything for his glory. And everything that comes from his hand is good and is wise and yes, this trial is hard, but I know he's wise and loving, so I know his gifts are good. When you see more clearly that Jesus, Jesus endured all suffering to display the grace and the glory of God, we can start to look at our suffering in that same light and begin to see God's glory and begin to say, you know what? Whether I'm healthy or sick, whether I'm facing loss or I'm surrounded by blessings, whether I'm enduring suffering or I'm enjoying good things, if I've been redeemed and saved by the ultimate suffering of Jesus Christ, I am overwhelmingly rich in him. And God, you can use even the hard thing of life if it's gonna bring you more glory. Because here's the, here's the second and last part of why this is good news. And this is something I rarely heard in church growing up. And, and here's what it is. God is unwaveringly committed to your joy. God is unwaveringly committed, relentlessly pursuing after your joy. You know, as a family, we, we recently started um, going through catechisms and we, we gotta get back into it. We've, we've dropped it for a bit. And catechisms are this. They're, they're these short questions with short answers to help you remember theology, to kind of put it all in a place where you can get your head wrapped around God's word and what God's up to. And, and the, the first question of the Westminster Catechism is this. The first question of this catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Let me say it a different way. What's the purpose of life? And he says this, the purpose of life is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He said, that's the purpose for life, to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So it's not that God busts in on our scene and he goes, it's all about me. Get down and worship me. And he forces worship out of you. It's this, you see his glory and your heart is so filled with joy. You're like, God, you're so good. 
God, you're what my heart's been seeking all along. Your glory is what sustains me. Your glory is what brings me joy. And Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, the chief and ultimate end of God in the works of creation and providence was the manifestation of his own glory in the, listen, the highest happiness of his creatures. And John Piper said it like this. He said, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Start to see that God's glory and our joy, it's the same pursuit. That the, the more we enjoy God, the more he's glorified. The more we go after God's glory, the more joy we experience. Here's what I love about that. See, because I, I grew up in churches, and I, I would always hear throughout my life that, that God doesn't care about your happiness. He only cares about your holiness. And it's all about obedience, just obey. And it is, it is about obedience, but do you, do you see where it comes from? That, that God's not this cosmic killjoy, just bossing us around, forcing us into submission and worship. No, God is for God. So for God to be for his own glory, it, then begrudging submission is a loss for him. If, if God is for God, then, then all the commandments God gives us are meant to lead us into greater joy. When God says, here's how contentment works. When God says, hey, this is how marriage works. When, when God says, here's how work works. When God says, this is how sex works. Whatever it is. God's saying, listen, I'm the one who created this. I know more about this than you do. I know where joy is found in this. So when we're taking something that God has said, hey, here's how I want you to live, and we're saying, you know what? I want it for my own. I'm gonna do it my own way. Listen, it's not going to bring us greater joy. We think it will. We think it's because in the moment, it's about our glory, and it feels good in the moment, but in the end, it does not bring us greater joy because we're taking something God created and misusing it. I mean, think about it this way. If you take an iron and you use it for what it's created for, right, which is, which is taking wrinkles out of clothes, right? It does a great job at that because that's what it was created for. When I was in college, we also used the irons for frying eggs because it was a hot thing, right? So you could, didn't work so because it would get into the little holes there. It was horrible, right? If you were to take that iron, we never tried this and go, you know what? Gotta play some football. We don't have football. Grab the iron. Let's use that. Boom, right? Why? Because it wasn't created for that. God knows how life works. And, and if you're living in a way where you're saying, God, I want to follow after how you've designed it to work, I'm telling you, it maximizes your joy. God's so committed to his own glory. He's, he's committed to your joy, saying, hey, here's the way to live. Here's how I designed it. So church, let's maximize our joy in God. Like, like as a church, as a families, as, as people following after Christ, let, let, let's that be our, our pursuit that we're desperate for this joy in the Lord, that we're, we're seeking his glory, we're enjoying him forever. So that, listen, even in hard times, we could be like the Apostle Paul who says, yes, we're sorrowful, but also rejoicing. We're in the trials, we start to see God different. Yeah, I'm in a hard time right now, but I'm seeing the shepherd's heart in his hand in a way I didn't before. And in the, in the times of blessing, we're, we're, we're in the food, the fun, the family, the relationships, everything in your life, that, that all of those things also are a fuel for joy. They, they can fuel our joy as long as, listen, that they don't be the place that we end. They're a means to an end, not an end in themselves. That, that those good gifts God gives us, they're the beams of light, but the, the source is what we're going after. 
I've heard it described this way. It was uh, years ago when my kids were smaller, we took them to Disney World. Now, now imagine with me, I had three daughters. I mean, Disney World princesses, like it was a, a total, it was like just the best vacation ever, right? But imagine that we're rolling into Orlando and there's the sign for Disney World and we pull over at the sign. Well, it says Disney World. And we, we bring the car in under the sign. We get out the picnic basket. We just sit there for a couple days and we made it. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? We would have missed, listen, we would have missed the glory of Disney because we stopped at the sign that was pointing us to it. So, so don't stop at the signs of, of, of the gifts that God gives. Don't, don't stop at food and sex and friends and music and technology and, and nature and miss out on the real glory that all of that is pointing to, a relationship with our creator. Because when our life, when it ends in our stuff, when our life ends in us as the ultimate glory, it's so precarious. I mean, that's a joy that can be taken away so easily. But when it points to the glory of God, there's a deep and lasting joy this world can't touch. And I would say this, if, if I could go back 12 years to us starting this church, I would have started it right here with this. I would have said, let's begin with the glory of God and together let's figure this out. Let's pursue this. Let's go after it in God's word together. Let's go after it in our lives. No more half-hearted pursuits of God. No, no more just going through the motions. But, but with this reckless abandon, we seek after joy. Joy in pursuing God's glory. So as the worst team comes up, I mean, where does that start now? Like right now this morning. Where do I go? How do I pursue this right now? My, my heart is hardwired for this, to go after the glory of God. Where, how do I begin to see the joy in that? Maybe right now you're going through a, uh, a tough season in life. Like, how do I go after joy in this hard season? I would say it begins here. It begins with recognizing, let's go back to the story of David and Goliath, where you start to go, I'm not David. I can't fight this Goliath. I think it begins here where it begins with repentance and confession and, and honesty before God. We're saying, Lord, I'm just hiding out in my tent. I need you. That I'm no John the Baptist just so boldly saying, you increase, I'll decrease. It's, it's in that moment where you actually begin to just drop to your knees where you, you throw everything down and say, God, I can't do it. God, you're gonna have to enter into this right now. God, you're gonna have to move. You're gonna have to do the work. You're gonna have to change my heart. You're gonna have to change my mind. And then listen, as a church, we go after this together. We continue to point each other to the glory of God. We begin to anchor our lives in what matters most because what John the Baptist said is this, my joy is now complete. It's full. On what? God's glory. So let's do that. Let's build our lives on the things that this world could never give us. Let's not build it on things that buckle or fail or fade or erode away. Let's build our lives on God and his glory. Just stand with me and let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord God, I thank you that you are fiercely after our joy. God, I thank you that you are relentless for your glory. God, that even this morning, that as we stand and sing, as our hearts worship, knowing that you created us to worship, God, I pray that this morning our hearts would be wooed and drawn to your glory. 
Lord God, that you are everything, that you are our God, that these other things around us, they, they don't come close to your glory. God, that our lives would be about that, to pursuing your glory and enjoying you forever together. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.